Thank you for joining us for the Preaching at Trinity podcast. We hope you enjoy this six-part sermon series on the priority of worship. Here is our senior pastor at Trinity Baptist Church, Dr. Daniel Minton. All right, take your Bibles go to John 4. We'll get there eventually. We'll actually be starting a new series today. We're going to focus on giving God what He deserves, which is what we just sang about, and that is glory, glory, glory to the Lord of hosts. In 1977, Maria Rubio of Lake Arthur, New Mexico, was assembling a burrito when she noticed in the skillet that the marks on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Excited, she showed it to her husband, who agreed, and to the neighbors, all believing that it was the face of Jesus, a famous, iconic Roman Catholic image of Jesus that was burnt into the tortilla. So Maria took the tortilla to her priest to have it blessed. She testified that it had changed her life and uh, that Mr. Rubio agreed that she seemed more peaceful and happy and submissive since the tortilla arrived. The priest, not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was somewhat reluctant but agreed. Mrs. Rubio took the tortilla home and placed it in a shadow box surrounded by cotton balls so it looked like Jesus was floating in the clouds. She set it in her backyard in a shed And thus was opened the shrine of the Jesus Jesus of the tortilla. Within a few months, 8,000 people had come to the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla. And all all but one agreed that it was Jesus who appeared in the tortilla. One reporter thought it looked like Leon Spinks. He was a famous boxer who was not known for his looks as he was missing most of his front teeth. Within two years, more than 5,000 people had visited the shrine. It continued for 28 years until her granddaughter took the tortilla in the shadow box to school for show and tell, in which it was dropped and the tortilla shattered. They quickly placed the tortilla back into the shadow box and put it back in the shed. But a few years later, They closed the shrine because the shed had fallen into disrepair. After this, many other people were led to worship Jesus in images that they found in kind of a bizarre replication of medieval practices. People found them in oil spots in their driveway and garage. They found Jesus in burnt toast, browning bananas, and even a misshapen Cheeto. In each one of these, it illustrates a couple things. First, it illustrates that in each one of us, there is this desire to worship, that God has built inside of us a desire to acknowledge his existence and to worship him. But it also, unfortunately, illustrates that the creature is often more interested in worshiping parts of creation rather than the creator. Romans 1.25 tells us that people will change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And this unfortunate story illustrates that. As we begin our study of worship, we're going to see that God deserves our worship. 
And that because he is holy and he is righteous, we must worship him with purity and with truth. His truth, not our truth. And so we cannot choose how we want to worship our creator. He alone can dictate what true worship looks like. And as a person who was created, as people who are created beings, we've been made with the high priority of giving God what he deserves, which is glory and honor. And so we're going to study briefly today from Scripture what Scripture tells us. And I want to start at the beginning. Since God is the creator and he made all things in creation, then let's start with the fact that God created mankind. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1.28, he created them male and female. And he created us so that we would give him praise, so that we would worship him. He created mankind in his own image. He didn't create the birds of the air, the, the, uh, the, the flowers of the field in his image. He created mankind in his image. And he created us to give him glory. Mankind was created for worship. And so he created us to be a representation of him. Not that we are gods, not that we become gods, but we resemble, we have a shadow of who he is in each of us. This image it designs our purpose or it states our purpose. And so God created man with a body and a soul and a spirit. No other form of creation have this. It's, it's why we have the ability to speak and to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. And we do this in the manner that no other form of creation does. No other form of nature can. We can create in a limited sense. We create, we proclaim, we can invest we can illustrate, we can prioritize things in a way that is glorious to the Lord. And so he made us his image bearers. And, and as his image bearers, we're to respect creation. Ephesians 3 verse 8 says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should proclaim or preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1, 16 and 15 tell us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so God creates us and he created us so that we would honor and glorify him and we would fellowship with him and we would bear his image wisely and would proclaim his glory to everyone. And even since the beginning, God walked with mankind. God walked with Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3.8, he walked with them in the cool of the evening. He walked with them. He fellowshiped with, God, with, with them. Think about that. They were side by side with God. Now, I think that's the pre-incarnate Christ. But they fellowshiped with God each day as they walked with him. It's interesting, this word walk appears so many times in Scripture. Methuselah. The, the oldest man to ever live walked with God. That's what Genesis 5.22 tells us. Then Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and God knew him, and God took him. Their fellowship was so pure, so good, that God took him, he never died. Noah walked with God, and we know that God chose Noah to bring about the salvation to the world through the, through the ark. 
Abraham walked with God, and through him the covenants came. Isaac and Jacob, his descendants, received uh, this reward as well, as they walked with God, Genesis 17.1. Israel was commanded to walk with God. Deuteronomy 11, verse 22 says, For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. The church is commanded to walk with God in Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. And so we're given this command or this idea of communing with God or, or, or joining alongside God. To walk with God means to be united with God, to be in agreement, or we could even say, take it to, to further the illustration, to be in step with God. And the idea is not that God joins us and walks with us, but we join God and walk with God. And this is not just obedience. It's agreement with God about the truth, about his truth, joining with him. Why? Because he's the creator and we are just the creatures. And so he commands us to walk with him, but he also desires that we walk with him. But we can only do it if there's purity in our worship. And this is something that, that the world for centuries gets confused. This is what religion gets wrong. Religion is the confusion of worship. And so people think that worship is debatable. And yet God desires that we have purity in our worship. Mankind believes that worship is adjustable to our desires it gets relegated. Worship often gets relegated to our feelings or our standards or we'll even say our preferences. And so people pick churches according to the worship style, according to what is most comfortable to them. And yet scripture is explicitly clear. Worship is all about God. It is not about us. It's not about our comforts. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our preferences or even our priorities. It is about God. And probably one of the clearest scripture in all, of, all of, of God's word is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's everything, is it not? Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, that encompasses everything in our life. Every action that we take, every place that we go is, is encapsulated in that phrase that everything we do is to be to the glory of God. Then, of course, worship must be that. It must be according to God's glory. Also notice the activity here. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because worship is, it's not a spectating activity. It is a, a personal commitment of participation. And so with that, we arrive at John chapter 4, where Jesus meets this woman at the well. And she's immediately going to go to a discussion about worship styles with Jesus. She wants to argue about which worship style is the best, the Jewish style or the Samaritan style. And so just would you read with me, starting in John, just so we get the broader context, although we're going to look at just two verses, would you start reading at verse 5 with me? So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. 
Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now there's this burning desire in this woman to know what what living water is. She doesn't quite get it, but she's desirous of it. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? The answer is yes. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. I'm going to stop there. This is very interesting conversation that's happening between Jesus and this. She's not necessarily a harlot, but she's basically a harlot. She's been married five times. She's with someone who's not even her husband now. She's a wicked woman. She's there alone at this time of the day, the sixth hour. It's late in the day because no one else wants to be near her. And yet Jesus wants to be near her. And he wants to give her what she desperately needs and she knows she needs it. She's just looking in all the wrong places. And where are the places? Well, she immediately turns this conversation into a debate about worship. Should we worship at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, or should we worship in Jerusalem, where the Jews say we, we should worship? It's all about style. It's all about preference. It's about their traditions that they're passing down. She even perceives that Jesus is a prophet. So he must have good knowledge on this. And so she gets into this kind of a debate about what does real worship look like, and Jesus is trying to tell her, and she's not listening. In fact, he even tells her that those who worship him have to worship in spirit and truth, and she still doesn't get it. Verse 23, 
Jesus says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And she doesn't like that answer. She wants a yes or no. She's demanding basically of Jesus, tell me who's right and who's wrong. Do we worship in Mount Gerizim like the Samaritans say? Or do we worship in Jerusalem like the Jews say? And the woman said to him, basically, because you can't tell me, I'll wait. And what she say? I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so she says, you, you, all right, you, you're not even going to answer my question about the right place. It's got to be one of these two places. Guess what? It's neither one of those places. And so she demands that Jesus tell her since he seems to be a prophet, and she doesn't like the answer he gives. And so she says, fine, I'll just wait for the Messiah when he comes. He'll tell me. Now, I love verse 26. If things have not been clear, Jesus is going to make it unmistakably clear. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And it changes everything. She believes, in fact. And so he calls out her worship. And yet what this illustrates is this this thousand year discussion, by the way, it's more than a thousand years. There are still Samaritans in Israel. They are still worshiping at Mount Gerizim. They are still arguing with the Jews. So this is almost a 3,000 year argument that's going on. 2,600 years of arguing about what is the right place to worship. And they don't get it right. This is the, the whole point of religion is this, to, to try and formulate mankind's ability to, to discern what God wants when God explicitly tells us what he wants and what's, we, we act like the woman, I'll wait for the Messiah, he'll straighten things out. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah, I just straightened it out. Now, she worships at that point. She goes to the city and she tells everyone, or to the village, and she tells everyone that she has met the Messiah. So she begins to worship. But there's this divide. And that's what religion does. It divides things up and it, it, it puts uh, emphasis on external worship. Improperly, it focuses on the wrong things. And so the woman acknowledges that it is Jesus. And she's, here's the thing, she's genuine. A lot of people pass off poor worship with a, a genuine heart. Right? I, I mean it from my heart, so it's okay. God is not accepting her false worship here. She's genuine. She believes that the Messiah will straighten things out. She genuinely believes that. And yet she's still wrong. And there's a lot of people who genuinely follow a religious code or system and they're wrong because they don't agree with the Messiah. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. 
And so the Jews and the Samaritans are focusing on external sacrifice, attempts at external cleansing to make themselves clean. The Jewish tradition does this. The Samaritan tradition does this. In fact, all the religions of the world do this. Follow the right code, follow the right system, and you'll become acceptable to God. Think about Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Islam, or even Christianity. Follow the certain set of rules, or the code, or the system, or the rights, and and you'll be accepted by God. They get it wrong. In fact, John, the whole book of John is emphasizing this. This is why these things are being written down. John chapter 3 tells us that we must do something. In fact, there's three musts in John. John chapter 3 verse 7 says, Jesus tells us, you must be born again. It takes a a, a rebirth inside of people, a recreation by Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable to God. And it's nothing that we can do. He tells us in John chapter 3 verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus Christ, in other words, what this is saying is kind of in code in John 3, but for us, looking back at history, we know exactly what it means. Jesus Christ must suffer and die on the cross. Why? So he can pay the death penalty for our sin and rise from the dead. He must be lifted up. In fact, it's just after that that we have the most famous verse in all the scripture. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The solution. And then we arrive here at John chapter 4 where Jesus says worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. And so we're going to look at this worship in spirit and truth and what it means. First, to worship in spirit, it means the heart and mind of man. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. God has created us with a body, soul, and spirit, and we are to use all of that in giving him glory. If we're image bearers of God, if we, in a sense, represent or or are a shadow representation of who God is in all his glory, then we must worship him the way that he has made mankind to be the pinnacle of creation. So we must worship him in heart and mind, in our spirit. And so true worship is accomplished in the very depth of who we are, our inner being. Something that, that animals do not have, that the rest of creation does not have. Charles Spurgeon once said, I really like this quote, God does not regard our voices, he only hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. We just sang glorious truths about God. And if all we did was stand and look at a screen and recite the words on the screen, and we said them, even if we said it with a smile, and we didn't sing it with our hearts, then we never sang at all. That's what worshiping in spirit means. It's the internal nature of the word. This internal praise to God that is coming from the very depths of our heart because we believe these things to be true. And so it's a component of sincerity. And yet we we have, as always, there's two ditches we can fall into. We can worship 
the truth without the spirit, and we can worship the spirit without the truth. And so we worship in spirit when we worship with our emotions and our praise, and, and it comes from our heart, but we, we worship the wrong things. We don't agree with God. It's called zealous heterodoxy. It's the emotional, external conformity. It's the performance of our heart. But no truth. And the other ditch of that would be dead orthodoxy, where we recite the right things, but with no heart at all. The ritual and the ceremony of religion. And we find both ditches. And the road is relatively narrow, and it's easy to fall into one of those ditches. In fact, we can have a church that is absolutely focused on the truth and focused on having the right spirit, and we can still fall into that. As the pastor, I could work my hardest to make sure that we are absolutely zeroed in on the truth and the right spirit, and we can still fail when we sit and we sing without our heart. And we open up God's word with no desire to, to, to have it change us. Or we focus on the, the preferences and the rituals and, and we give God no praise. The flip side of that is we don't even agree with God about the truth. And both of them fail. Both of them are failed worship styles. And yet we find that if we are renewed in our spirit by the word, we have an increased capacity to give God praise. And our hunger for God enlarges and hopefully our preparation for worship expands. Pastor Perry very honestly said this morning how difficult it is sometimes to prepare our heart for worship. It is. It's really hard to come and sit with a bunch of other sinners or drive here with a bunch of sinners and arrive with a heart that's prepared to give God praise rather than focused on the circumstances of what didn't go the way we want. It is hard. And yet we must worship God in spirit. We also must worship him in truth. That's to worship according to what God says or what God has revealed about himself. So what is God like if we never ask that question? If we can worship God, if we can sit in a church service and we can worship God and we never ask in our heart, what is God like? Have we actually worshipped God? Or have we worshipped the practices of a religion? Or, or what do we think about God? You realize in Scripture, there's a lot of, of examples of people who failed in worship. Think about Cain in the very beginning. Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God. Abel offers the sacrifice that God asks, which is the shedding of the blood of a lamb. Cain, however, offers from the fruit of his ground. He's a farmer, and he offers his, his grain and his produce to God. He doesn't do what God asked him to do, and yet he, he felt like God should accept him. He felt that God should accept him on his terms, Cain's terms. And so I don't even know if he was sincere or not. It doesn't matter if he was sincere or not because he didn't do it the way that God dictated, the way that God asked. 
he didn't worship God in truth. I think he could also say he didn't worship in spirit either because he felt that he knew better. Fast forward to the book of Acts and you find Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and they give the money to the church, but they lie and they keep some of it back, but they tell everyone they gave it all to the Lord. I think that's a failure of truth on multiple levels. Not only did they lie about it, they thought God couldn't see their heart. Did they worship an omnipresent God in that moment? No. They felt like they could hid their, hide their sin from God. Cain, did he worship a God of, of wisdom and goodness? No. Or think about the Corinthian church. It was, it was really kind of a wicked church. There was, there was all kinds of sexual sins going on, and they treated God as an afterthought in worship. They could live however they want, and when they showed up to church, they could just kind of get it right with God, and God would just pass over their sin. Oh boy, does that not sound like a lot of Christians in America? That we can do whatever we want all week long, and as long as we come to church, and we kind of go through the correct motions, God will kind of just stamp approval, forgive us, and, and let us move on. Did they worship a God of purity? Did they worship a God of holiness? Did they worship a, a God of righteousness? Or did they worship a God of their own making? All three of those instances, the people created a version of God that was more palatable to them, more acceptable. The Bible calls that idolatry. And we're all tempted to do it. You know, God is not a cosmic force who just kind of started things out and let it go. Neither is God karma, where he gives people what they deserve and, uh, and, and it, it'll come back to get them later if they do bad or if they do good. God is not a, a lottery ticket that we can hopefully hit the blessing with once in a while. And God is certainly not a fail-safe that if everything in life depends on me and if I, I make a mistake, then I can just run to him and he'll fix it. All of those are poor understanding of who God is. And yet, sadly, a lot of it describes our worship styles today. And yet our worship requires thought. Every worship service and every worshipful moment demands the activity of our heart and our mind. We must develop the ability to think deeply about God and to hold his truth in our hearts. You know what often that means? Often that means that we don't understand even fully what we're doing. For instance, how can you worship a God who is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time? And you can't love justice and hate mercy and worship God. And you can't love mercy and hate justice and worship God. We must accept both truths about God. That he's fully just and fully merciful. And the way we do that is we say, I can't fully understand God. But I accept what he says about himself. I accept who he is. And I ask for wisdom. Or the fact that God is a God of anger at times over sin, and yet God is a God of love over sin in providing his only begotten son. There's, there's a lot of 
human paradoxes in God. Because God is not bound by our logic. He is bound by his very nature. His character dictates what is true, not us. And so to only worship one part of God and ignore the other is a failure of worship. We must worship, worship God in spirit and truth, his truth, not our truth. I want to close with one more thought, and that is the profound seeking of God. Because Christianity has a unique claim that no other religions of the world have. The central reality of worship is not that we are seeking God, but that God is seeking us. And we see that here at the woman at the well, where Jesus has this divine appointment where he orchestrates to arrive at this time to send his disciples away so he can have this discussion with this woman who is sensitive spiritually, maybe even desiring to know the truth, but it's her traditions and her nationality and her preferences and her sin that are hindering all of that. And so Jesus seeks her out. This is totally a Christian idea. The Jews did not, do not, did not and do not believe this today. The Samaritans did not and do not believe this today, that God is seeking to know them only that they are seeking to be approved to know God. Think about the other religions of the world. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Jehovah Witness, Mormons. All of them are man's attempt to find God and seek God's approval, to win over the gods. Even go back into Greek, uh, Greek mythology. All of it is man mustering up God's attention so that God would look upon man and have favor. Can I tell you, God already had favor on mankind, and it's called his son. And so God sent his only son to seek us out, to seek out our restoration, and only the truth of Christ makes that claim. No religions make that claim. And why does he do it? Because he's a God of love and mercy and tenderness and compassion and righteousness. He demands righteousness and only his righteousness is sufficient, not yours. And so worship of God is centered on his word and it's done in the spirit. And that's what Jesus is clarifying with the woman, the Samaritan woman. Genuine worship must be in spirit and in truth. And so he says to her in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter if you're on Mount Gerizim. It doesn't matter if you're out in, on, uh, in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount doesn't matter where you are it's who you're worshiping that matters why because the father is seeking such to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth and so jesus clarifies that jesus sought her out 
And the question is, will she worship him in spirit and in truth? And as I stated a moment ago, her response matters. And she goes to the village and she tells everyone what Jesus has done and what Jesus has told her about himself to the point that she brings the village back to Jesus to talk to him. And then all the way down in verse 41, it says, many more believed because of his own word. Many more believed. So I think, yes, the woman believed. The woman that day, for the first time ever, worshipped God in spirit and truth. Because she agreed with God. She agreed with God about her sin, which he clearly, as the omniscient God, the God who knows everything, knew that she'd been married five times, knew that she was living with someone who wasn't her husband, knew that she was a wicked woman, and yet he desired to give her his righteousness because he sought her out. And so let me ask you today as you sit here, do you worship him in your spirit, your heart, and his truth? Repentance is so important. It's us agreeing with God, not asking God to agree with us. And it's agreeing with God about our sin, that every one of us is a sinner, that every one of us deserves punishment and God alone deserves worship. It's agreement that God alone provided his only begotten son, that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but have exactly what he promises to this woman, everlasting life. So let me ask you, do you agree with God today? Do you agree that you are a sinner and you desperately need salvation? From your sins. What a great day to stop, to stop trying, to stop trying to be good enough for God and just simply agree with God that we're not good enough and agree with God that deep down in our hearts we are wicked sinners and we do not deserve His goodness but also agreeing with this woman that he is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross because we are sinners, because we needed him to seek us, and then agreeing that he rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He proved that he is God in the flesh, the only payment of righteousness that is sufficient for salvation. And if you have never experienced the salvation of God, would you do it today? Would you agree with God? I'm gonna close in prayer, and after I pray, the choir's gonna come and sing, and that, that's how we're gonna be closing uh, a, a large portion of our service. They're gonna come and sing a song called Come Find His Rest. And if you've never experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, would you come today and find his rest? I'll be at the back of the auditorium. Would you just come? Come and find me so that we can talk about how today your sins can be forgiven. Let's pray. We hope that today's message has challenged you spiritually and has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. For more information about Trinity Baptist Church, 
or if you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us on our website at tbcwestfield.com or on Facebook or Instagram at tbcwestfield. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us again next time for more Preaching at Trinity.